0: Hello, and welcome to the Dismantle Racism Show. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. The goal of the show is to uncover, dismantle, and to eradicate racism, because we really do want to create a world where racial equity exists for everyone. As usual, I would love for you to comment on the show if you're watching live. If you're not watching live and you go back and look at the show later, please do give us your comments. We would absolutely love to hear what you think about the show and we would absolutely love for you to tell your friends, your family, everyone about this show, because if we want to dismantle racism, we have to get the word out. I also invite you to visit my website at sacredintelligence.com to find out a little bit more about me and the work that I do as well. You can also pick up a copy of my book there as well. I want to start the show today, as I always do, by inviting us into a time of meditation, because it is important for us to be grounded when we're having these conversations on race. Sometimes when we are talking about race and racism, uh, we may have these emotions that are running rampant inside of us. Sometimes we need a moment just to ground ourselves so that we can find the right words to say. So I invite you, even when you're not listening to the show, to have your time of just grounding yourself, meditating and breathing remembering to take a breath. But I want to invite you now to close your eyes. If you are listening in a place where you can close your eyes, and I want to just invite you to feel uh, your feet on the floor or the ground, depending on where you are. And just begin to take some deep breaths in and out. And continue to take some deep breaths in and out. Recognizing that your breath connects you to your power source, connects you to your sacred intelligence, your divine wisdom, that part of you that will help you to make intelligence choices, to manifest your greatness while simultaneously helping others to manifest their greatness. So just breathe in and out connecting with who you are connecting with your ancestors and those who've come before you giving gratitude for those who've paved the way for you gratitude for the people who helped to make you who you are so just breathe in and out Giving gratitude for your gifts, for how far you've come. Gratitude that there are people who will walk with you on the remainder of your journey. Giving gratitude that you are never alone. So just breathe in and out. Breathe in and out. Connecting with the other people who are listening to this podcast. Connecting with others who are walking on the journey of dismantling racism. And connecting again with your power, recognizing that what you do matters. So breathe in and out. Recognizing that the power of one contributes to the power of community. Now take a deep breath in, sigh it out. We say, and so it is, ashe, amen, and let's begin. If you have been paying attention over the last few years, I'm sure you didn't learn this when you were in school, but if you've been paying attention to race matters, you will know that in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in 1921, there was a district known as Black Wall Street. And it was located in the Greenwood district of Oklahoma. It was one of the wealthiest, Black communities in the United States. It was burned down by white people. In 1923, a predominantly Black vibrant town in Rosewood, Florida, was burned down by another group of white people. If we go back a little farther than that, we will know from history that when the Emancipation Proclamation came about, we were actually promised 40 acres Not the mule, the mule part came later. I know it's conflated in there. And actually a little known fact is that that 40 acres that was promised to us actually came about because there were black people who fought for it. We have been in the business of trying to claim our rights in this country, perhaps since its inception. And we're still fighting that. We've made a lot of progress, but there is still more progress to be made. Today, many of the communities, the black and brown communities are economically depressed with inadequate access to housing, to healthcare, to food, to employment, and a plethora of other things. But we do have people who are working really, really hard to make sure that we have what we need in our communities. I'm really delighted today to have as my guest, Eric Clemens, who is doing a phenomenal job in this area of making sure that our communities, that the people in our communities are served. I wanna tell you a little bit about who he is. Eric is the co-founder of the Connecticut Community Outreach and Revitalization Program, CONCORP as it's known, which is a subsidiary of CONCAT. Now we'll hear a little bit more about that later. Prior to working in both of these particular programs, he was the um, executive director of LEAP. And so you'll have to go back and do your own research on what these programs are, but here's what I want you to know about him. I actually have known Eric for about 15 years, and I have seen Eric in whatever capacity that he has been in, whether that was working for Job Corps, LEAP, or CONCAT, I have seen this man dedicate his life to serving others and to making sure that black and brown people have what they need to not only survive but to thrive in our communities because we're too used to just getting by i believe that eric wants more than that i actually met eric in seminary school um, I went on to become a pastor. He did not. He had another calling. And since that time of being in seminary school, Eric has earned an honorary doctorate of humane letters from the Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut. It is my delight to welcome to the show today my friend and colleague, Eric Clemens. Eric, thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Doc. And thank you for having me. I I will start out by saying, um, without provocation, that I am just so proud of you from our days in seminary, um, and you really thinking about and trying to figure out what it is you want to do and who it is you want to be. You're so talented that you could have been anything um, to see you now with a book um, sitting behind you, authored Mm. by you. Mm. and a radio show, and a pastor of a church, it is just, well, I'm not surprised, but it, you are a profound example of of really just grit, um, resilience, and accomplishment, and mm. so it's an honor, um, mm. sister, to, to be on your show.
0: Well, I appreciate that. I think that for both of us, we've come a long way since uh, sitting in those seminary classes to the least and it's really been incredible to watch your journey and to see how committed you are to this work to this passion because this is not easy work for us to stay on the journey of trying to serve other people and to dismantle racism in the process and as i always say on this show we do it in very different ways so we have to start where we are use what we have and to do what we can but eric I always love to ask people this question around what grounds you in this work, whether you have a sacred uh, practice that you use to help you in doing this work. Because as I say in my book, we have to have a sacred motive. There has to be a reason we do this work, because I'm sure there are days that you might want to give up or or just might be done with, with this work. So what keeps you in it? What grounds you?
1: Yeah, great question. What grounds me? One is, of course, prayer and praise. Um, I, I, I'm more than um, excited to to praise God um, at any time of the day, because quite frankly, what, what also grounds me is connected to that, is the fact that I've been uh, poor longer than I haven't. Mm-hmm. And so I understand the symptoms of poverty and the sting of poverty. And so that in and of itself grounds me. Um, and also the, 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 the little piece of scripture um, that the apostle Paul speaks of in Ephesians when he says and that in the dispensation of the fullness of time,
2: mm.
1: God will gather together all things. Mm-hmm. And so when that happens, um, I want to have done my part and contributed to the world in a way that, will, that would have made God proud and happy.
0: Mm-hmm. So that
1: mm-hmm. always grounds me, quite frankly.
0: Mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. I love that. And, and it just takes me back to those seminary days. So I think people could probably see why we're friends, because that is a grounding that, you know, to know that the reason why we're doing this work is because we're called to something higher than ourselves. Um, Eric, we're going to have to take a break in just a minute. But you mentioned you've been poor longer mm-hmm. than you've not. Tell us a little bit and you can begin the conversation uh, and and we'll continue after the break. How does your own story inform your desire to work on economic development? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, you know, my my story is uh, one that is quite common, quite frankly. You know, I was born and raised in Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, I live in New Haven, Connecticut now. Norwalk is about a half hour south of New Haven. Grew up in, in the projects. Um, and for the most part um, was, was single parented by my mom. My dad was struck with mental illness and would later be diagnosed with schi- uh, paranoid schizophrenia. And, but, but I was, I was raised by a community of people and, and quite frankly raised in a community center, which is the Carver foundation, which still stands today in Norwalk Connecticut. And so, you know, my, my story of, of poverty and overcoming um, there's some tension there. You know,
3: mm-hmm. I, I
1: think and, and that grounds me as well. Um, but but again, my story is, is very common where I come from. But but it, it, it also inspires me to can, continue to do the work on behalf of the folks who are living in the conditions I was able to overcome. So mm-hmm. that is the driver for me. It mm-hmm. is not the success I've experienced. Right. The success has been the result. It was never the reason. Mm-hmm. Right. I was called to help people. And I know I was called because it chose me. I didn't mm. choose it.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know what, that's a powerful statement to say that it chose you because certainly I did not choose ministry, uh, right. ran from it for a very long time. But Eric, when we come back, uh, I what distinguishes you, though, from, and maybe it is the calling, but something somewhere had to say to you, I don't want to be in poverty forever. And so what distinguishes you from those people who choose to stay where they are? Because I believe for some people, and I know this is a heated statement, but for some people, they're choosing. I think we get to choose every day what we are going to live with and what we're not going to live with. Yes, we're born into circumstances. I wasn't born with a lot of money either. But we choose, we can choose some things differently. So when we come back from the break, I'd like you to tell me what you think helped to be a defining moment for you to choose not to be um, a lifelong person who lives in poverty. Absolutely. This is the Dismantle Racism show. My guest today is Eric Clemens. We'll be right back. We're back with my guest today, Eric Clemens, who is the CEO and uh, president of ComCat, and he's also one of the co-founders of ConCorp. Eric, before the break, I was asking you about your story, and you mentioned that you were born in poverty, and look at you now being uh, president and CEO of, of multiple companies, so what distinguishes you, what was the thing that you know, said, I don't want this for the rest of my life. I want to see a different way.
1: You know, um, I don't even know. Doc, if I said I don't want this, I did know that what what I wanted to look like. I didn't know what I wanted to be or do. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of things happened to and for me. One was when I was 14 years old, I, I ended up uh, being on a train a Metro North. And I write about this story um, and talk about it quite often. And on that train, it was a 440 train coming from Stanford, Connecticut, going to Nor- Norwalk, Connecticut. And I saw this man, this black man on the train. And at, at the time, right, my, my life was at risk. I was, a, I was a youth. My dad, as I mentioned earlier, was, uh, was suffering from uh, mental illness my mom, my sister, and my brother, my brother was younger than me. My older sister was a year older than me. We were living in a, a, a one room apartment, uh, sharing a bathroom and, and kitchen with other folks on the same floor, of this, this uh, building in Stanford, Connecticut. And life was at a, a very low point for me, not just because of the conditions I was living in, but because my father who had resided to talking to himself, um, I didn't see him anymore. I have no idea why. I had no idea where he was, what happened to him, why he was talking to himself. All I knew was my my mom packed us up and we left. We never talked about it. So if you can imagine this little boy trying to figure out and navigate the world mm. um, with this thought and wonder of his father. And so anyway, I'm on this train and I see this, this black man in this gray pinstripe suit with yellowish socks, yellow and blue socks, and he had gray around his his temples. And I don't know what it was about him. Mm. And I, it was probably more about me and mm. what I needed in, in in life at the time. But for, him, for me, he was the person, I had no idea what this man did, I had no idea who he was and I still don't, but he was the person that I wanted to look like. Mm. I wanted to wear a suit like that. I wanted to sit with my legs crossed like that. I wanted to read a newspaper like that. I wanted to have a briefcase, all of those things. And for whatever reason, I chose him to be my archetype. Mm,
0: mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: So that
1: was a profound moment for a 14-year-old boy who was lost. Mm,
2: mm -hmm.
1: Secondly, and through the course of my life, I'd never in high school, I didn't do well in school. I went to four different high schools every year. Of of my high school uh, experience because we were very poor and we were, um, um, you know, we had to move out of where we were. We were evicted everywhere we were, which consequently I had to go to different high schools because you know you had to go to school where you lived in. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I didn't do well in school at all. Now I hated school, but I love to learn. Mm-hmm. And so, what I did, what I chose to do, because I love the, I love words and I love word construct, I chose to read every book I could get my hands on. That was the second thing that happened to me. Was was kind of teaching myself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And third, because for whatever reason, God had put a lot of promise in me, and a, a, I think some gifts that there were people who saw that while I walked in the world, while I navigated the world, and. Ironically, these people who noticed whatever it was that was in me, they didn't look like me.
4: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And for whatever reason, I know the reason that these people who were white people said, you know, this, this young man has something special in him. And so what, what ended up happening, they conspired to create opportunity for me. And as you know, opportunity means nothing without access.
0: That's right.
1: And so once I was given opportunity, and a lot of times people who are, this goes to your question, people who are living in poverty, they don't identify opportunity.
0: hmm hmm They just exactly. don't. Exactly.
1: Because the conditions of poverty are psychic issues mm-hmm. where when opportunity presents itself, you, you almost see it as a trap.
0: Right, right. Or it's
1: not for you.
0: hmm hmm
1: And so um, once I was presented with these certain opportunities, my, my gifts and my preparation were connected to the opportunities, which then gained me access.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I, I, I love that story, and it, and it still was about you choosing, mm-hmm. right, to act on that opportunity. So what I'm wondering, well, first, before I, I get to my next thing, is I want to say you're absolutely showing that what we do matters, even the way we show up and the way we dress because that man has no, if he's still living, didn't know how he impacted you. And that means the ways in which we walk through this world is really important because there's always someone watching us. They're watching the good, the bad, and the indifference. And so I think that's important. And secondly, I think it's also important that when folks hold out their hands to us, it doesn't matter what color they are. You have to, as Howard Thurman say, you take the hand that's being held out to you and and you talking about your your love for reading is one of the reasons why when we sat in class I was totally stunned that you didn't already have your PhD by the way you showed up in class because when you are in a room your presence is known and it's not that you're trying to be boastful or any of that you're just speaking in the way that you speak but there's a, there's a power with it and so that means that other people are watching you now so I'm grateful for the work that you're doing because i'm sure you are impacting the people um, that you come into contact with and so what i'm wondering taking what you know about poverty taking what you know about the psyche and how hard it is to get out of it tell me a little bit about the founding first of comcat tell us what comcat is and and what went into founding founding that particular organization and, and how you uh, help people in our community?
1: Yeah, so ConCat uh, is is uh, an abbreviation for the Connecticut Center for Arts and Technology. And you mentioned the organization I was running before that, which is Leadership Education Athletics and Partnership. Um, again, another salient example of opportunity. Uh, so I'll start with with Leap first because you know when I was I, w- I went to school late um, again because I was a postal worker. I think this is really important. Um, When I finished high school, you know, I I went to college for a semester, was ill-prepared for for college, and so I ended up getting jobs, and so I ended up at the United States Postal Service, and I worked there for 16 years, and around the 12th year, I had had met a girl, and she and I had uh, four daughters, Um, and around the 12th year, of working. You married
0: her. I think that's important.
1: I did. did. Thank you so much. I did meet her. You you weren't
0: just having babies with her. (laughs) You met met your (laughs) wife.
1: Let me see. You're right. Uh, We got married. And around the 12th year of, of being a mail handler at the United States Postal Service, I started thinking deeply about what my contribution to the world would be. And I started even thinking more deeply about and became more conscious about what have I done to make my daughters proud? I have four daughters. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a noble job, very honorable job, but had not really done much in, in terms of serving the people. And so I started thinking about going to college. And I started at a community college, Housatonic Community College in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and then migrated to and matriculated to Southern Connecticut State University in New Haven as we moved from Bridgeport to New Haven. And where I went to school full-time and worked full-time. I then was poised to graduate in 1994 with a degree in sociology, but I had to do an internship and write a thesis. My dream, Doc, was to teach Black kids um, who were living in the conditions I was able to overcome. That was That's what I wanted to be, was a teacher. And so um, my advisor, Dr. Shirley Jackson, uh, who was at Southern Connecticut State University, sent me to this place called the Leadership uh, Education Athletics and Partnership uh, to do an internship, doing after school programs, given that I wanted to teach. And so with that, um, I did it, wrote my thesis. Uh, The folks at that particular organization asked if I wanted to go to a golf outing where there was a fundraiser. I said, yes, because I love my time there. I go and sit next to this, this young man who's a white guy. Sat next to him. He and I talked, his name was Andy Boone, his name is Andy Boone. Andy was on the board of this particular organization that I was intern, and asked me my story, told him I was supposed to work on mail handler, love my time at LEAP, doing my internship, getting my degree. And he then says, because they didn't have really, they had maybe one person of color, a black person on the LEAP board. He connected me to somebody at LEAP who then connected me to the board and they asked me to be on the board of directors of this organization that I was the intern in. Opportunity. Exactly. From there, I served on the board. I had no idea what a board of director was. Served on the board, um, quit my job at the post office, started working at Job Corps. The board then, um, we we lost our executive director at the time. The board asked me to now run the organization that I was once the intern
2: Mm -hmm. two years before. Mm -hmm. So
1: now I'm running this organization and I didn't know how to run an organization. However, I mentioned that I grew up in a community center. And so I remembered what it was about and what people needed. And so I just kind of recreated what, um, where I came from. That leads me to CONCAT.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and, and we'll hear a little bit more about CONCAT because we have to take a break, but I think it's really important for people to see you know, listening to your life and how you've moved on, what we do absolutely matters because you remember what you grew up in, the cultural center that you grew up in, and you were able to mimic that in some Mm -hmm. ways when you were a little bit older. And the other thing that's really important, talking about the psyche, you didn't let what you don't know stop you. Amen. because, Because when you move from LEAP, to being president and co-founder of this school that was even another growing process and so i want to just say to our audience particularly as it relates to dismantling racism there's a lot that we don't know and i want to say for white folks in particular there's a lot that you don't know but it's important to keep moving through the process it's important to keep learning again as people of color we don't know everything either but i'm speaking to white people because often i hear white people say what they fear about doing this work that they're going to mess up yes you will mess up i'm sure eric has messed up along the way but you keep doing it so when we come back i want to hear a little bit more about uh concat and concore so that we can figure out what is it that you're doing to uplift the community. And I'm really interested, and I wanna make sure we get time to do this, to talk about the investment piece and the economic development. We'll be right back with the Dismantle Racism show. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism back with the Dismantle Racism show. My guest today is Eric Clemens. Eric, now tell us a little bit about CONCAT and what you all do there. How does it help individuals in terms of preparing them to thrive in life and not simply just survive?
1: Yeah, so CONCAT is the um, a replication of Bill Strickland's Manchester Bidwell model in Pittsburgh. And, and Bill Strickland, who is to me the preeminent social entrepreneur in this country, Uh, created this model some 40 years ago to help folks who lived in the Manchester section or neighborhood of Pittsburgh, where he is from. Um, And it's a combination of workforce development training, as well as arts programming, arts programming for young people, workforce development for adults. And so some 12 years ago, I met two gentlemen, two incredible black men, uh, one Bill Strickland, who I mentioned, uh, and two Carlton Highsmith, who is the board chair of CONCAT and CONCORP. Um, and I got, got called to a meeting because New Haven had this idea of bringing Bill Strickland's model uh, there. And I was running LEAP at the time that I mentioned before and doing quite well at it. And, and it's, it's also important to note that at LEAP, I met the most incredible people, Rosalind Meyer, Ann Calabrese, Bill Graustein, Karen Prisker for people who do not look like me, who opened doors for me or gave opportunity to me, and quite frankly, gave sage counsel to mm-hmm. me. Very important to note as we go through this uh, journey. And so I met these two black men who were uh, senior to me, and they heard about the work that I was doing at, at LEAP and uh, was really interested, keenly interested in talking to me about uh, my interest in building and running this new idea called CONCAT, Mm -hmm. this replication model. And so I met with these, these two men, and we talked for about three hours, uh, doc. We never talked about CONCAT. We talked about ways in which we saw ourselves saving the world. Mm -hmm. And what occurred to me in those conversations was not their ideas but the idea that I could somehow be them at some point in my life.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And so I, um, I left LEAP, started building. Um, CONCAT took a year to do so. Um, I say I co-founded it. I co-founded it with the board chair, Carlton Heisman. Um, and we replicated Bill Strickland's model. Really important to know, to give credit to where credit is due. Um, started uh, building a new organization, stood it up. Um, I ended up hiring all Black people because I felt like we're, we're, we're sitting in the midst of a historic Black neighborhood called Newhallville, um, as well as Dixwell, another historic Black neighborhood. And I wanted folks to work with those people who look like them
4: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: because there's a sense of trust there, right? Because folks are rendering themselves vulnerable as they ask for help. Mm-hmm. And so we partnered with the El New Haven Hospital. Um, Because it's workforce development, Yale being the the largest employer in the city of New Haven. So we created training programs based on Yale New Haven Hospital's needs, medical billing and coding, phlebotomy. Around the third year, I realized I did not do a good job of creating a training for folks who are reentering society who are incarcerated. Mm
4: -hmm. And so
1: we raised money and built a culinary school. For whatever reason, culinary is very forgiving to people who are who are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Built this world-class culinary school. We raised about $2.3 million to do, to do that. Uh, 30 to 40% of the folks who would be in this this uh, training would be folks who had been incarcerated at some point in their life and deserved a second chance. Mm-hmm. And part of the feasibility was there's proliferation of restaurants in New Haven, as you know, New Haven well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they needed chefs. They needed cooks. They needed line cooks. And so there was a job at the end of the training. Um, also did uh, arts after school programming for youth in New Haven and Hamden with Hamden is a, a neighboring town, as well as we started Entrepreneurship Academy for high school students with Quinnipiac School of Business. Mm, mm-hmm. And so my board chair, Carlton Highsmith at the time and still is, uh, was is a uh, a trustee of Quinnipiac University, and he endowed a chair at the School of Business A contingency on that endowed chairship was they would help me start a high school entrepreneurship academy
0: so so i mean you you are just absolutely dropping a lot of kernels here because what you're saying to us is that there needs to be partnership in order for us to thrive so we could start a school over here but if we're not connected with any of the other resources in our communities then it's just a school it's just right. school where you're training people. And so I loved how thoughtful you all were in terms of saying, well, who's the main employer in this area? And what sorts of things do we offer at the school? So you, you've you talked to us a bit about that then. So let's move a little bit into, because I know that right now um, you're serving, you left there to, to do the second part, which is the com Corp. But now you're the actual interim president there again as well. Tell us about economic development, because really, that's one of the ways that we learn how to build wealth as well. So what do you do um, in terms of economic development and investment? What is the goal? What is the plan? How do you help
1: people? Yeah, I think, first of all, you picked up on something really important when you talked about partnership, and even deeper than partnership is relationship. Not only relationship to individuals, but re- relationship to institutions. Mm-hmm. That's really, really important in the work that we do. Um, and so after running CONCAT, it became wildly successful. Um, we, you know, we started thinking about what is the next iteration of impact we could make um, in community, and especially for folks who have been through our programs. Hundreds of folks going through our programs who are now seeing life differently, who came to CONCAT as, as folks who are unemployed, underemployed, mostly living in poverty, um, and depleted of hope
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And
1: now are full of hope and seeing the world differently, right? And they see possibilities beyond their conditions now. What could What, what is the world we could create for them especially? And so we started looking into being um, economic developers. We started uh, in Dixwell, the Dixwell community, which, again, is a Black community, historic Black community that has been uh, disinvested, where a lot of disinvestment has not been... Uh, Really, kind of catered to, in my opinion, by the city of New Haven, and quite frankly, left to to die. Yeah. And so, we said we wanted to reinvigorate that community. Especially, we wanted to bring in economic infrastructure and capital formation by creating an economic development strategy. There's a plaza there, seven and a half acre plaza that was part of urban renewal model. You know, the the, the model city um, that New Haven was called. And it has been left to decline. Mm, mm
4: -hmm, mm -hmm. And
1: Dixwell, as you know, because of your time at Yale, is a major, if not the major artery in New Haven. Mm
4: -hmm. And
1: this black section of New Haven has been left to decline with no investment at all. Mm -hmm. And so we said we should do something about that because given that we are part of the social contract, that it is up to us to do something. And shame on us if we never tried. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so we then put together a property acquisition strategy. Again, another relationship from a a person who doesn't look like us, who was so enamored with the work that we had done in community with CONCAT that his family said, we are willing to give $40 million to the work that you all are doing. Mm -hmm. Incorporate that work as under the umbrella of CONCORP. And so we started getting busy with our property acquisition strategy. We, we then master planned the entire site as well as program the entire site, sat with community for the last three years while purchasing these, these buildings in this dilapidated plaza. Um, we then kind of programmed based on what community said they wanted, needed and yearned for. And what we are now doing on that site is building a hundred. We will now be building 184 units of housing.
0: Oh, wonderful.
1: Yes. Oh, um, yeah. Building a 15 restaurant food hall mm. retail spaces for uh, black entrepreneurs,
2: mm-hmm.
1: black business people in that community in, in new Haven.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, also a supermarket because there was nowhere for folks to really get fresh food, right? A 300 seat performing arts center. Mm-hmm. Building a 60,000 square foot office tower, which we may have a AAA tenant now, 15 townhouses, greenhouses, taking the CONCAT building from Winchester Avenue, where you know it is, where you know where it is, and doubling in size so CONCAT will own its own building. In that building will be a, um, a early childhood center and a family child guidance center that will be ran by the Hill Health Center. Uh, the Friend Center will run the Early Childhood Center. Um, also, that's one, that's one uh, project. That's a $200 million project. We own the entire block now, from mm-hmm. Webster Street to Charles Street. And we'll be knocking the plaza down in the next 60 days.
0: Well, you know, I have to tell you, Mr. Clemens... You were looking to see what your mark would be, what you could leave for your girls.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I, I would venture to say I'm sure your girls are absolutely uh, proud of the work that you are doing and is so needed. And not everyone can do what you have done. But again, we have to do what we can where we are, right? Yep. We do have to take a break. But when we come back, though, I, I'm i wondering what have been some of the challenges that you faced Along the way, you know, with the re, whether it's with the rebuild uh, of, you know, this community, or just in general, what some of the challenges are, and um, hopefully we will have time to get into this piece as well. What are some things that the individual can do themselves to start to to invest in themselves to start to gain a little bit of. Uh, economic upward mobility because we started this out talking about tulsa and rosewood and what you're doing in your community is revitalizing those communities and that's great but i'd love any guidance that you could give to the individual out here in terms of just changing their financial trajectory so we are going to be right back with my guest today eric clemens this is the dismantle racism show we are in the final stretch of our conversation of course there's much more that that we could talk about um eric what have been some of the challenges that you faced along the way with you know this this project that you're doing now or even just in your your work that you were called to that chose you as you say
1: yeah i mean there 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 are many challenges i think the, the the top three in my opinion was getting people who are indigenous to the community that we are building it, to see themselves in what we are building. Mm. We believe that we wanted to bring beauty and dignity and utility to that community. And and that's why we listened to the community for three, three years. We are not coming to the community saying, we're going to build you this because we want you to have this, Mm -hmm. that we're going to build you this because you said you wanted and needed and yearned for it. So it's Mm -hmm. a community centered design approach Mm -hmm. to impacting people, uh, who are who have been living in poverty and we are aggressively addressing that poverty with this uh, economic development economic development plan secondly which became a surprise to me given the work that we are doing that this this group of black folks called concorp and concat who really aren't versed in economic development um now owns an entire block in the city of New Haven
2: mm-hmm. three
1: blocks from Yale university. Mm-hmm. And so one challenge is that I didn't see coming is that the work that we are doing disrupted the flow of power. Yes. New Haven. <laughs> yes. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and so that was difficult one to identify second to even think about mitigating
2: mm-hmm.
1: that when in fact we own property, right. It's not just this $200 million project that we're doing. We now own uh, four residential, um, four residential houses
2: mm-hmm. we
1: own three businesses one a market another catering business and orchid cafe um soon to own another cat soon to build another cafe we own a forty-five thousand square foot building which we call the lab at concord where we're incubating black businesses
4: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: while at the same time started an entrepreneurship academy for adults um black black owned um businesses with Quinnipiac school of business that is ongoing as we speak. And so this little nonprofit organization um, has now accumulated, in my opinion, a level of, of influence and power, not only in the Black community, but in the entire state. Right. Not because it, it, we're Black, because the work that we are doing is highly credible.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. so, but But it's also important because it helps us to see that we can change the status quo, because that's exactly what you did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You changed the power structure a a bit.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And not even thinking about doing it, right? We just wanted to do good work on behalf of the people who deserved it. Now, going back to the issue that I I mentioned, right, that the sting of poverty and living in certain conditions that were systemically created Mm. um, sometimes does not allow our people to see the promise and hope that is in them. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the work and really the thrust of my life has been to really hope to identify in people the very promise hopes and dreams that they have that the conditions not has not allowed to happen.
0: So Eric, I have to tell you this because as I'm as I'm watching you I could hear you as a preacher <laughs> though I've never heard you preach and here's the thing that I'm thinking even though I'm a pastor, I feel like the work that you are doing, uh, how, do, how do I wanna say this? You know, we get up and we preach and we inspire people, but you are changing lives. And there's a difference. Now, I know there are people out there who will, will say, well, wait a minute, we're changing lives too. We are working with people's souls and their spirits, and that's important. But what I hear you doing is taking your love for God, first of all and honoring your calling and saying, this is how I will change people's lives. And I think that that's really, really critical and you're staying in the game. So though I could hear you, I I mean like I could see you up in a pulpit though, I'm sure you can't see yourself doing that, but I could see you inspiring people in that way. And so I just wanna thank you just personally for the work that you are doing to uplift our community, and you're doing it in a way, and this is the thing about dismantling racism, it is the day-to-day stuff that we're doing. And you don't have to always be talking about race, but you're changing a racist system in the process. So uh, if I've never thanked you before, I wanna just thank you for really uh, the work that you're doing. I'm I'm so proud of you as well, because I've known you for a long time, and it sounds like this is something that would have taken you years to do, but I actually knew you during the leap days or job core days. And so when you think about how how much has changed, not just in your life, but in other people's lives is significant. So I wanna just thank you. So I know we don't wanna have a lot of time left, but what can the individual do, right? So, cause not everybody can get out here and, and start building all of these things, but what can what can we do individually to start changing our mindset about our own wealth and investment?
1: I think what's important and this has become really important to me to understand. And I didn't even know I had this in me, but, but just not fear, the fear of failure, I think holds us back. Mm -hmm. Right. That, you know, we don't have to be wealthy, right. Social justice to me is not about um, having everything or having what white folks have. Mm -hmm. To me, social justice is about having enough. Yeah. And what does it take for us to have enough?
2: Mm-hmm. And it
1: takes for folks to be uncomfortable,
2: mm-hmm.
1: first, with who they are and their and their conditions. Secondly, be uncomfortable with the idea of stepping out mm. on faith. And it sounds cliche, but it is not. It is mm-hmm. indeed a thing, right? To, to go out there, and you know this, because I've watched you mm-hmm. do this. I've watched you kind of create the world that you want to live in. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, you can't be in the world that has been given to you.
0: That's right. That's right. right. And so
1: that's really, really important for any entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Step Mm -hmm. out and do things that they don't know how to to do. I tell people all the time, just because I don't know how to do it doesn't mean I can't.
0: Well, I mean, you started running an organization and you didn't know how to do it. I had no idea what I was was doing. Which was incredible. But, you know, I I don't want to gloss over what you just said about being uncomfortable in their conditions because a lot of people are really really comfortable living where people are comfortable in chaos Mm -hmm. so but eric we only have a a very short time left on the show so what um is there anything that you would like to add that you haven't already added to uh this dynamic conversation that we're having
1: you know i i think one thing you know I, i i've always said that poverty is probably the most insidious thing created And and racism is the weapon of poverty. And so the fact that you are uh, really focused on dismantling racism um, is really, really important because I think a lot of people will follow you and what you have written um, and what you stand for. I think that's number one. Mm -hmm. Secondly, and I tell my staff this all the time, and as you mentioned, I run two organizations now, that this is not for me about becoming wealthy or or. Um, becoming successful you know I've done very well in life and and again I have I I live with a certain amount of privilege now but again as I said earlier um, I live in poverty longer than I've lived in privilege Mm -hmm. this is for me about love Mm -hmm. I have a deep and wide love ethic Mm -hmm. and I've said to my team all the time that in order to do this work you have to love the people Mm -hmm. you have to and if, in fact, you truly love the people, they will love you back.
2: Mm,
1: yeah. Because there are times, and you know this because you're a pastor, that you're going to need the people to love you back. Yeah. Right? And so that's really, really important to me. That is the ethos and thrust of who I am. Mm-hmm. And the other things, right, the economic development, the the, the uh, kind of um, being very fortunate of, of being comfortable, Uh, being very fortunate and being successful in whatever endeavor that I, I chose to um, be in that is secondary to the love that I have for humanity
3: Mm.
1: and especially Mm. our people, because, Mm. you know, I understand now why I saw that man on the train, right? Because I've become that man Mm. for others.
0: Indeed, indeed you have. And so really, that's a that's a wonderful place for us to um, end our show, love for the people. You know, it's one of the things that I heard when I took on this mantle of becoming a pastor, love the people, love the people, love the people so more. And so, Eric, I just absolutely want to thank you for being on the show today. You know I adore you, uh, and I and I'm so just very proud of the work that you're doing out in the world. And so I know that you will have continued success. I'm, I'm really happy for the people in New Haven who will benefit from this as well. And I also want to thank my listeners today for joining us for this dynamic conversation. Please do make your comments on Facebook, uh, YouTube, uh, write to me. Go to sacredintelligence.com, send me your comments about today's show and what type of shows you'd like to see in the future in the meantime i invite you to stay tuned for the conscious consultant hour with sam Leibowitz, where he helps you to walk through life with the greatest of ease and joy be well be safe be encouraged until next time bye for now
2: Thursdays, 12 noon, on talkradio.nyc.
4: In a post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be Frank About Health to advocate for all of us.
0: Are you passionate about the conversation around racism?